Welcome to Mintel's Little Conversation podcast. Welcome to Mintel's Little Conversation, where our experts bring you fresh ideas and new perspectives on how consumers eat, drink, shop, groom and think. I'm your host, Andrew Davidson, based in New York. And today we will be discussing consumers changing attitudes and expectations when it comes to the topic of sustainability. In light of everything else that is dominating the news cycle right now, from inflation to the war in Ukraine, what is the consumer mindset when it comes to this critical topic and how can brands adapt to changing consumer needs? Mintel will soon publish the second edition of its Mintel Sustainability Barometer, which dives into these issues across 16 countries. And I'm delighted to welcome Richard Cope, the author of the barometer based in London, who is joined to give us a sneak preview of its findings. Hello, Richard. Hi, Andrew. Also joining the conversation today to add the North American perspective, we have Lisa Dubina from Chicago and Scott Stewart from Toronto. Welcome. Hello. Hi, Andrew. Excellent. Welcome to the pod. Please introduce yourselves. Uh, I'm a senior trends consultant at Mintel. I'm working out of the United Kingdom. Um, I work a lot in macro trends and futurology, but I'm the author of the uh, sustainability barometer, which I'll tell you a little bit more about later on. Hi, I'm Lisa Dubina. I am an associate director here at Mintel. I write for the U.S. Culture and Identity Library, and I recently published the Sustainable Consumer Report here in the U.S., Hi, I'm Scott Stewart, uh, Associate Director of Lifestyles and Retail in Canada, and I recently published the Sustainable Consumer Report in Canada. Great. Well, it's great to have you all for this important discussion. All right, so let's start at the very top by defining sustainability as a concept. Where does the term originally come from, and what is the background to the sustainability barometer? I think in the term way we probably all think about it at the moment in our business and people listening is this kind of idea around the triple bottom line and think people thinking about sustainability across social, economic and environmental angles. But I think if we go back further, I start to look at where the origins of the word, you know, going back to sort of the 17th century and stuff, and it kind of originates from the word bearable. Um, I don't mean bearable in terms of something being annoying, but something you can support. Um, capable of being continued at a certain level was how it started to be talked about economically in the 60s. And I think that's key because, I know we'll talk about this today, but, you know, um, it's on every brand's campaign or website at the moment as a kind of sort of hygiene practice. But I think that practicality about it being about something which can be uh, continued at a certain level, uh, mm-hmm. that practicality of it is, is really what it's about. And I think that's that's pertinent to a lot of the pressures we'll talk about today. Um as for the barometer, that's really about exploring things from the you know the consumer angle. You know, at Mintel, that's that's our core expertise is is what consumers want and why. So what we're really trying to look at in the barometer is to track um, consumer attitudes, track consumer behaviours, understanding levels um, around around that as well. And I think the value, the businesses of the barometer is really sort of identifying where they might need to educate consumers where they might need to match certain priorities um, and how they need to communicate things so they best resonate with them. And so, I mean, this is the second year of the barometer. What changed? I mean, how are consumer attitudes evolving when it comes to sustainability? Well, at the top line level, I think the thing that struck me most with the second wave is what I would call a kind of reality check. Um, When we ask people about their you know, biggest concerns, uh, their priorities when it comes to the environment. What we've seen in the past is things like ocean plastic, very high up the agenda, waste and, and recycling in general, very high up the agenda. And um, we know that in terms of emissions, you know, they're, they're sort of lesser issues, if you like, compared to things around energy. And what, 
what we're seeing this time, I think, is a sort of reality check. We've, we've changed priorities, things like climate change, um, global warming, um, water shortages, food shortages. They're really going up the agenda in terms of consumers' priority concerns. So I think the realities of climate change, disruptions to su supply chains, um, tangible weather events and things like that seem to be impacting on, on what people are prioritizing, what people are, are concerned most about. That, that's been the most striking thing for me in terms of the data. Um, from a U.S. perspective, we're seeing in our U.S. data that uh, U.S. consumers are continuing to pretty much fall behind other countries when it comes to engagement with sustainability. Um, only about four in 10 Americans consider living sustainably to be a top priority for them. So despite there being awareness of and concern about the climate crisis, most Americans are really doing the bare minimum right now. Um, you know, consumers are continuing to really think about living sustainably as um, a very challenging endeavor and one that's often um, fairly confusing. Uh, so they're really looking to brands right now to make sustainable living a more convenient and efficient option. We're seeing something similar in Canada where there is a lot of confusion. 71% uh, of Canadians say that they are a sustainable consumer, but when we look further into the day of the day, they don't know exactly what that requires of them. So as a result, they are gravitating towards the simpler, more tangible and salient behaviors, throw out less, uh, at this point, drive less, these kind of simple behaviors and the mm. more minimal the sacrifice to them personally, the more attractive it is because to Richard's earlier point, it can be continued. It needs to be a sustainable behavior for them as well. Yeah, so I mean, interesting because one of the more, most uh, fascinating, fascinating aspects of the barometer is these, these differences in attitudes and behaviors and how they vary, you know, across the globe. And, you know, for, for, for example, Canadians tend to be more optimistic about their ability to have an impact than Americans. You know, why, why do you think that is? And what are some of the more notable behavioral differences that you see across markets? Yeah, it's interesting in, in Canada that not only is it that um, there's more optimism about having that impact, but when we look at the barometer, it also shows that they uh, are more likely to feel that Canada is responsible for some uh, climate change. So there's likely a connection between those two as far as the power and the responsibility. Mm. The question of why that is, uh, there could be, it could be a political, cultural side. Um, our recent election last year, the Liberal government that won, uh, had climate change as a major pillar of its campaign. So that's reflective of the cultural change. And also, if we look at um, oil production as a per capita percentage of Canada's economy, um, it plays a bigger role, certainly in comparison to the U.S., so that that might be more top of mind for Canadians as far as what we're doing to the environment based on our economy. And as a result, the responsibility feeling and then that empowerment to do something about it. So you're saying Canadians are taking more responsibility for their impact on the environment? They're more likely to say, uh, to agree that their country is contributing to climate change. 48% uh, agree with that based on the barometer compared to 39% in the US. So that cross mm. border comparison indicates that that might uh, explain the difference in the, in the optimism about having an effect because they think that they're doing something in the first place that they can potentially change. I can almost hear Lisa and Scott doing their countries down a little bit, saying that, you know, people are doing the easy, taking the easy option. Uh, they're looking for a return on investment. They want things to be convenient. I mean, that's that's true across all the markets we're seeing. And I think, you know, in the sustainability community, it's pretty well recognized that 
people are unlikely to buy products just because they're ethical or good for the environment. They still have to be convenient. They still have to be high quality. Um, you know, if they if they're going to succeed in the marketplace, and you know, I see the same thing here in the UK. I see the same thing. Um, across, you know, when we ask people about a staple product like coffee, you know, what considerations are most important when they buy it? Um, sustainability is pretty low down the agenda. You'll be lucky if one or two of the top five considerations are around sustainability and it'll never be the top one, two or three in terms of that. So, yeah, it's that's what we see globally. It's the most popular behaviors are the ones which are simple, the ones which save money. The most popular sustainability behaviors are reducing consumption, you know, things like mm-hmm. buying fewer clothes, avoiding food waste. Um, and, and that's the challenge going forward. You know, people are only going to buy electric vehicles or change their home utilities if there's an ROI. And that's that's really what has to be sold in. That probably requires a lot of, a lot of government help as well, of course. The U.S. continues to be very polarized when it comes to the idea of sustainability and climate change. Um, there is still a significant uh, segment of the population that really doesn't truly believe in this issue or, you know, believes that it falls within the top even five uh, top issues that we need to be concerned about right now. So I think that's where you're seeing more division and um, a little less engagement on the U.S. side is that, um, you know, between political beliefs and um, other issues kind of competing for attention, um, the U.S. market continues to be a bit divided when it comes to this issue. Right. So we mentioned, we talked about um, some of these differences in optimism by market, but in general, are consumers feeling more or less optimistic these days? What does the barometer tell us? There is a a sense of time running out. So um, we have a statement where we ask people, you know, if we act now, we still have time to save the planet and the proportions responding positively to that are diminishing. Um, It has actually gone up in Australia. um, And to build on Scott's point, we've obviously had a change of government there where um, policies around climate change were were a big factor in that election. So that's interesting. Mm. But we needn't be that um, negative about declining optimism. I think it's natural we've got declining optimism. I mean, um, the COP26 event focused a lot of attention, probably for some people for the first time, on the scale of the challenges ahead how we are behind schedule. Um, then you have the intergovernmental panel on climate change reporting that, you know, the shortfalls of where we are. Climate Action Track has said we're on the road to 2.4 degrees at the moment. So when you hear this kind of stuff coming out of the media, it's natural people are, are less optimistic um, in terms of that. But, you know, there are reasons for optimism in this barometer, in the, in the new wave of data. Um, we are seeing increased desire. The proportions of people who want to have an electric vehicle, the proportions of people who want solar, um, the proportions of people who are reducing meat consumption, who are embracing micromobility, the proportions of people volunteering, all those all those things are going up, which you know does does bring hope. Um, I guess the thing at the moment is war in Ukraine is also something which is dimming optimism, and you get this every time something happens in sort of geopolitical tension level you get lots of talk about sustainability being something too expensive for consumers and i think you know there's a lot of that happening at the moment i think actually mm-hmm. what's happening with war in ukraine is kind of giving us a foretaste of uh, the issues to come from climate change and actually being more resilient um is really the lesson which which is coming from that um and a really strong argument for why individuals and governments should embrace sustainability but we'll, we'll come back to that later maybe on
Yeah, I know. It's funny. It's interesting. I mean, let's dig into that a bit more because, yes, you have seen clearly, yes, Ukraine is a factor and you have seen some governments come out and make statements that they're going to try and do their best to sort of shift their policies and shift their reliance away from countries like uh, Russia towards more sort of renewable energy uh, sources. So let's dig into that a little bit further. So how do you each see the, the war in Ukraine impacting sustainability? So currently in the U.S., we're seeing about 70 consumers uh, say that inflation is currently one of their top issues of concern, and that's compared to only about a quarter who list climate change as one of their top three concerning issues right now. Um, So we're just going to continue to see personal uh, financial well-being uh, be prioritized over climate change concerns. Um, You know, whether that's, uh, you know, continuing to see higher prices in the grocery store, at the gas pump, um, we're really going to see financial practicality uh, outweigh sustainable choices right now. Um, And in the long run, that could, in a way, further delay widespread uh, sustainability engagement among U.S. consumers. We're seeing something similar in Canada with the, the same metric. Thirty-five uh, percent of Canadians say climate change is a top concern. Uh, that's compared to forty-three percent who list world affairs. So it's a little bit behind at that, and eighty percent who picked inflation. So we can see where those priorities come through, and it, it makes sense that they'd be self-motivated. But at the same time, I think at a broader level, um, this could be a period where it at least shines a light on the complexity of, of sustainability for consumers. Uh, I mentioned that it, they prefer simplicity, but it's an incredibly complex topic. And it used to be just stop throwing things out and we'll be fine. We'll get rid of the landfills and then we're good. Now it's seeing how a geopolitical affair can affect prices and sustainability. And they're all kind of connected and how consumers can play a role in that. So I do think the priorities might shift at least in the short term, mm. but there's at least, if I look at it optimistically, it might be an opportunity to shine some light and uh, grow some awareness on how interconnected these all are. That, that's certainly what we're seeing in Europe. There's definitely a short-term reaction, which is going to be uh, relying more on fossil fuels and, you know, suddenly upping uh, oil production, whatever it might be. Um, I think what's interesting, you know, though, is that what you're seeing here is war uh, disrupting supply lines or reducing people's access to sort of staple crops. And it's kind of a early... A distasteful lesson in what's to come from climate change because i mean if you look um in the same year i've seen data from the usda uh in the united states saying that you know parts of the country's wheat yield are going to be down 21 percent this year because of climate issues nothing to do with war or conflict and then longer term you have the un talking about you know these big crop failures which we sometimes see and have seen in the bread baskets of the world they're going to be sort of four to five times higher in the next decade in terms of their frequency. So it's a harsh lesson in, in what is to come from, from climate change. And I think at a consumer level, this, you know, it's not just about, um, you know, less grain, less wheat. Consumers are going to learn things like the, the huge proportion of grain, which actually goes to animal feed, for example. It's going to make people aware of things like that. So it could impact on um, attitudes to meat more. Um, we're going to start using more palm oil. Uh, because we're going to be deprived of sunflower oil, for example. So there's lots of knock-on effects. But I think the barometer, um, if you look at a country like Germany, which from the European perspective is a lot more uh, fossil fuel dependent or fossil fuel friendly, certainly than France, which is very nuclear, or the UK, which benefits to a degree from nice uh, climate for renewables. Only 39% of the consumers we've spoken to in the barometer agree that Germany should stop investing in fossil fuel energy. And you can understand the kind of relative weakness of that in the, in the current uh, climate. But the government, 
the reaction to what's going on with the war in Ukraine has been to um, you know bring forward its target for getting almost all this electricity from renewable sources. Fifteen years, they by 2050 that was their target. They've now made it 2035. So they are in the in the short term they're using more gas and things like that. But their ambition is to triple their additions of uh, wind and solar going forward. So I think there's a lot of short term um, pain, but I think it's kind of sharpened the ambition of a lot of governments um, rather than blunted them to become more independent, more resilient, as I said earlier, to, to these kind of challenges. So I think you're going to see um, you know, more local regional sourcing, more people trying to use renewables or possibly nuclear, um, if that's more realistic, to make themselves more independent. So I think in the short term, it's very problematic, but I think longer term, at least from the government perspective, um, it's a kind of lesson in the need to be more more resilient and prepared for these shocks. That's a really good point. Um, you know, in the U.S., we continue to see a lack of knowledge and understanding of these very complex uh, sustainability issues being a main barrier to engagement in sustainability. Um, this could be a great opportunity for consumers to get, uh, you know, a real life demonstration of what are the realities um, that they will continue to face in the future if changes aren't made. Um, so, putting a positive spin there. <laughs> Excellent. All right. So, so consumer priorities might be elsewhere right now, but we're in the US, certainly we're entering, you know, fire and hurricane season and extreme weather events will bring climate change to the forefront once again. Uh, I was reading the other day, the day some staggering predictions uh, for the 2022 fire season in the US. Uh, the estimate is some 72,000 fires burning 8.3 million acres. That's from the National Interagency Fire Center. I can't even get my head around that. Uh, to be honest. Uh, so, but the point is, we know these events are coming. I mean, insurance companies, for example, have to plan for them. So, how should businesses be thinking about these extreme weather events? Um, among US consumers, the threat of extreme weather events is the top climate crisis concern, um, followed only by the risk of rising prices um, due to a lack of resources or supply chain disruptions. Um, so I do think that's the most real world and um, personally impactful um, effect of climate change. And I think brands do need to tap into this fear a little bit, um, utilize it as um, motivation to make more sustainable choices. Um, we're also seeing that the more climate crisis concerns consumers have, uh, the more likely they are to be dedicated to living a sustainable lifestyle, which makes sense. Um, so having brands kind of tap into these climate crisis fears, making these um, potential realities of climate change more, more personal, more relatable, um, I think could really impact U.S. consumers to take on more sustainability action um, and engagement in their personal lives. I think at a general level, um, and obviously where I live, we're not getting quite the extreme weather events, which you might get in the United States. And we've even had, you know, Canada in terms of extreme heat waves. I mean, it's happening more to a degree in, in France and Italy in terms of heat waves and things. But I think all of this reinforces, um, you know, protection and, and self-preservation is a real driver behind action. So, you know, consumers will start um, reacting to this just, just to protect themselves. Um, you know, one of my views on really is why the younger generations are so mobilized around this. It's not necessarily because they're more 
they necessarily care more or the more altruistic people or more environment, they, they're going to have to live with this. Um, you know, they're, they're mobilized around these issues because they're going to, you know, the second half of their lives are going to be spent coping with this. So I think protection, self-preservation is a driver. I mean, generally, you know, there's a big correlation between sustainable behavior and healthy behavior whether that's walking or running or cycling instead of uh, driving you know a very sort of prosaic mm -hmm. example of that i think you know the other thing which is you know you you might weatherproof your home or protect your home against against the climate there's a there's an roi on that as well and it's that same spirit of health or um you know roi which needs pushing uh, if we're going to sort of get more people to adopt uh, leasing electric vehicles or you know getting heat pumps installed in their homes or whatever it might be it's that that those drivers you know this is going to be better for your health and it's going to be better for your finances if you embrace this that's, i think that's what i would take from all this at a at a general level mm. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, obviously, the barometer, one of this sort of key theme that we're talking about today is some of this sort of change in behavior. You know, the barometers revealed this, as you described, Richard, this dimmed optimism, shift in consumer priorities. You know, uh, how should brands then adapt to that, those changes? Should they be adapting their strategies to those changing needs? I think it's about frugality. You know, as, um, as Scott's mentioned, Lisa's mentioned, these are the most popular behaviors. So you need to... Uh, push sustainable behaviors as things which are going to save on resources for the environment, but are also going to save on you, um, save money as well. Um, I think something else just comes through very strongly in terms of uh, how brands can, you know, position their strategies is the human element, because I think what we see from the data is people are much more likely to donate money to causes which have a human element rather than just a pure environmental element. Um, so I think there's a challenge to kind of connect things which are beneficial to the environment with the human story behind that. You know, by doing this, you're benefiting people um, mm. and how it impacts on livelihoods. But I think that's something which is quite entrenched. I think where we have a challenge and where our brands have a challenge is we, we are quite disconnected from the environment. Um, you know, we, we're continuing to urbanize possibly less so in North America compared to the levels of population density in, in parts of Western Europe or parts of uh, North Asia, but that's disconnecting us from nature. Um, I went to a really good exhibition uh, in London the other week uh, and they were just, you know, making the case that, you know, people need to make that connection saying this glass of water you're drinking comes from a cloud or that the breath of air you took came from the ocean. Mm. Um, so I think when brands and companies need to, you know, make, make, help people make that connection to other people, connection to the environment. But I also think, you know, a lot of things we've talked about is about things being, things being tangible. One of the reasons people might be getting more concerned is they're seeing these extreme weather events. We need to make the solutions, I think, more tangible as well and, and, and make them a bit more human so you can actually see them. That's why in my country, a lot of colleagues make fun to ocean plastic. I think in the UK, it's like the number, it's almost the number one cause, I think, a couple of years ago, which you think compared to climate change, that's ludicrous, right? But it's because people could see it and they felt complicit in it and they could see there's a relationship between them and the packaging and the brands and it's something they felt involved in so i think there's lessons to be had from things like that in terms of how we can uh, maybe mobilize against it we're seeing so many brands now um you know talk about their their carbon footprint or um, make promises of carbon neutrality um you know among u.s consumers uh, these concepts are really too abstract and unrelatable right now. Um, similar to what Scott said, the most top of mind um, 
actions that come to mind for U.S. consumers are, you know, recycling, reducing waste, um, things that are much more tangible. Um, so I think brands really do need to find a way to make some of these bigger, more abstract, complex uh, sustainability concepts um you know, bring it home to the consumer, like Richard was saying, make it more tangible, make it more personal. And yeah, really tie it back to how we are interacting with the environment day in and day out. Yeah, I mean, so that's a good segue, really. So, I mean, so have you seen a particularly standout innovation from a brand in your respective markets that will you think will really make an impact? So one example in, in Canada that I think touches on uh, what Lisa and Richard were talking about as far as tangibility and simplicity is a clothing brand called Ten Tree. And they, again, it's, it's the brilliance is the simplicity is that they plant 10 trees for every item you purchase mm. from them. That, that's it. We, I mean, we can debate what the impact is actually going to be from 10 trees for every t-shirt, but from a consumer perspective, they know if I buy this thing, 10 trees will be planted. There's a feeling of, of responsibility in, in doing that. And, and I think, um, it touches on everything we've talked about. It also brings up something uh, I, I like Richard's point earlier about uh, sustainability, kind of equating it to health, um, making it a sustainable practice, something that you can continue doing. It's easy to keep buying clothes that you like because you feel good about it. Um, I kind of equate it to with a health thing like Fitbit did so well because all they ask you to do is walk 10,000 steps in a day. They don't ask you to run a marathon once a right. week. So uh, in doing something that people feel good and say, yeah, I can continue doing this, um, it makes it more likely that they're going to continue doing that. So something like that clothing company um, kind of strikes that chord. Yeah, so it's simple, it's tangible, and it's achievable. Yeah. Um, an example from the U.S., uh, Patagonia Provisions uh, partnered with the U.S. brewery Dogfish Head. Um, they released an eco-friendly beer uh, called Kernza Pills, um, and it utilizes this uh, perennial grain called Kernza. Um, and they did a really great job of explaining to the consumer how this new grain really pulls down carbon from the environment and traps it in the ground. Um, they also also explain how, you know, it's um, a perennial grain, so it doesn't have to be planted and harvested annually, um, which means, you know, it's more protection for the, the root system um, mm. of the plant and protects the soil from erosion. Uh, so all of this is very much in that realm of abstract not really top of mind to consumers, but Dogfish Head and Patagonia Provisions did a really great job of making this understandable to consumers through uh, their social media videos. Um, they had a really great Instagram campaign that talked about it and really broke it down and made it um, the idea of regenerative uh, farming and agriculture much more um, understandable and really explaining why why it matters and how it's going to impact them. I know we're going to talk about um, greenwashing and stuff in a bit, so maybe I'll talk about campaigns I've seen in Europe then. But I think, not exactly brand action, but I think two of the things that have struck me um, most in Europe recently are some very kind of pertinent um, initiatives we're seeing uh, from governments. So Emmanuel Macron got re-elected uh, in, in the French election. And he got stung badly a couple of years ago with a kind of classic blanket fuel tax, which really hurt uh, lower income people who were very dependent on on vehicles and had all the gilets jaunes movement there. He's since um, 
responded to that with a scheme which would allow people uh, financially support people who qualify to lease electric vehicles. And I think that's a key thing. The idea of buying electric vehicle doesn't make a lot of sense because it's going to be so out of date quickly beyond the prohibitive cost of maybe purchasing one. So I think that's a really sensible scheme. We need to see more things like that. Um, I guess something else which is pertinent at the moment is um, there seems to be a lot of innovation going on uh, in North America, but also uh in, in Switzerland around energy storage there's a company called Energy Vault which is looking at sort of using gravity to store energy so we have all these shortfalls at the moment brought around brought about by disruption and that's one of the few ways you can actually store things and actually sort of release enough energy to and electricity to power people's homes so some some really kind of inspiring things happening in terms of innovation around that and some some good government policies and hearing what you know scott was saying about canada i mentioned australia really clearly there's some political shift happening around um, governments being elected based on based on this yeah it's, it's interesting from a consumer perspective it's difficult to know what what's really going to have an impact and what is to your point richard greenwashing um you know some of these innovations sound fantastic and, and yet from a consumer perspective like you say lisa it needs to be fully explained need to be um you know explained in a way that consumers can understand it but let's talk a bit about green greenwashing you know which brands then have got sustainability right you know who's got it wrong you know are there sort of any particular pitfalls that uh, brands need to watch out for in terms of the pitfalls i would say you know, brands need to be genuine. They need, they know where their impact is. So if your impact is your energy, which it probably is, and a big proportion of your impact is probably down your supply chain, uh, you can't be bullshitting people by just doing campaign, which is all about your operational emissions. Cause they might be, if you're a retailer, they might be like two to 5% of all your emissions. So it's things like that. Um, the one I always, um, pull out and, and criticize and attack my favorite one to attack was the sort of burger king campaign um about feeding their cows lemongrass and how they claimed it was going to you know i think it reduced the emissions by a third but they really were twisting the statistics because they only talked about the emissions during the last three months i think of the cow's life ignoring all the emissions from the feed in the first 18 months of its life um and just this is beside it having a horrendous kind of cutesy kids country and western video to a company where they emerge from the cow's <laughs> mouth and lots of fart jokes and stuff and um and if you look at the small print on the end you talk about this innovation you look at the small print on the ad i mean this is burger king right this is an empire it was only on sale at five restaurants oh, wow. in, in okay. the world so That's that was a terrible one the other one i've been giving a kicking to is uh uh mars chocolate did um some laudable uh, packaging innovations where they reduced the amount of polymers and plastics in some of their packaging, talked about the benefits of that, but they did that age-old thing of uh, the metrics were really insulting. They said, that's the equivalent of 26 Tyrannosaurus Rexes worth of plastic we've removed. I mean, what kind of metric is that? Oh, um, gosh, I'm, my squirming, my I'm squirming in my seat. Yeah. yeah, it's insulting the consumer. You know, they need to tell us, you know, okay, how, what proportion of your... Um, plastic use is that and i think you know to be positive the good example i've seen which picks up on a, a lot of what um, lisa was talking about is there's a tech reseller tech refurbisher called back market which is a, a french company which is um, trying to persuade people to get refurbed uh, iphones and things rather than buy a new one and they've done a really good job of firstly marketing that as something which is you rebelling and not queuing up with the herd to get the new Samsung or the new Apple product. They've also communicated how much it's going to save you money. And then 
in terms of communicating the environmental benefits, they, they talk in terms of kilograms, they talk in terms of liters of water, and they really explain the impact you're having in context. So I think that's a really um, laudable campaign. And as you talked about right from the start, I'm hearing Scott and Lisa say, you know, consumers' priorities are about money, they're about convenience. That campaign acknowledges that, and it, it appeals to people's ego and desire to be individual before it starts pushing the uh, environmental benefits. I think that's a that's a really on the money campaign. Yeah, so, I mean, there was a camp um, announcement yesterday from a bank in the US, TD Bank, which is famous for giving out pens in its branches. And they just uh, announced that they're going to be reproducing those pens using recycled plastic. And of course, now they're pushing out a campaign around that. I'd love to get your take on that particular campaign. <laughs> Saving the world one pen at a time. What are they they investing their money in is my question. So it's one of those ones that's in the gray area, perhaps, right? Because, you know, you you can't argue that that's not a good thing, that they're recycling uh, plastic water bottles uh, into the pens. Uh, But, of course, like you say, it's not exactly um, going to have a a huge impact um, on the environment. Depends who they're bankrolling with their with their investments. I think you know, it's no use uh, taking those pens out of circulation if you're uh, bankrolling fossil fuels or whatever it might be, which they might be. I'm not saying they are. I, I was thinking that that's also um, it, it's an interesting balance that brands do have to consider as far as the the complexity of sustainability. Sometimes the most impactful things you can do are not obvious to the consumer. So then the question is, how do you communicate that? ROI that you want to connect mm. it and then vice versa the things that are particularly obvious to the consumer like changing out the pens might not actually be doing that much in the grand scheme of things so if you keep doing that sure it might look great but eventually somebody might call you out on it so it, it's there's no easy answer to it um because it's, it's how do you a lot of it comes down to communication like speaking in kilograms instead of t-rexes mm-hmm. and how do you take that kind of back of house operational stuff and make that easily digestible for a consumer to understand um as an example of, of some transparency but some challenge in com- communicating it in the tech industry so apple has their environmental progress report um so you can go on their website and it's available and it has all the details on, on what they're doing mm-hmm. um, but it's it's over 100 pages long so if you're really interested and it's produced and published by them so there's a little bit of potential bias in there as well that people have to consider so um it's it's moving in that direction as far as here we're going to put the information out there but is a hundred plus page pdf going to get to the average consumer and make them truly understand what they're doing so um yeah a lot of it comes down to that communication and, and simplifying a very complex topic yeah I, I absolutely. It's a great point, and I, and I think it's there's this sort of fine line between almost being exploitative uh, versus being transparent. Sort of going back to what some what you would we some of our discussion around some of these extreme weather events. You know, usually brands step forward, of course, and they're helping local communities navigate whether it's floods or fires or what have you. Uh, but in terms of sort of trying to roll out some sort of marketing campaign or strategy around these weather events, you could argue that that's you know, somewhat exploitative. Like Scott said, I think it's uh, a tough, tough lane to walk. Uh, you really got to, you know, balance a lot of different considerations. Um, more than anything, I think that it does come down to communication and we need more brands to 
authentically step up and kind of put on the hat of educator. Um, there's just so many knowledge gaps and lack of understanding, um, especially when it comes to, as I mentioned before, some of these more abstract ideas of carbon footprint and, um, you know, net zero pledges. Those really don't resonate with consumers or mean much. Um, so I think we really do need to see more brands find ways to help consumers digest these these concepts, better understand how it's going to impact their daily life. And um, yeah, find a way to just, uh, as Scott was saying, make these more resonating and understandable to consumers overall. Lisa mentioned Patagonia provisions before. Obviously, they're more well known for their for their apparel, and you know, they there's a reason they are so fated as a sustainability brand because you know they have always really respected their customers. So you know, they never tried to talk about um, a product being sustainable because it's not sustainable. It uses resources. It has an impact on the environment. So right from the off, they were sort of very open about um, if you buy one of our items of clothing, this is the impact of it. And, you know, they had the don't buy the jacket campaign, which obviously made them even more successful. They paid their consumers enough respect to explain why they use plastic packaging, why they were receiving the goods wrapped in plastic and the impact of that rather than the goods being damaged and all the resources going out to being wasted. So I think being respectful of your customers and educating them and not just trying to blindside them is, you know, the, the thing we've got to hope more and more companies do. Because if they... If they take other steps in the other direction to try and you know bullshit people, they're going to have to go back and address that later on and hold their hands up and apologise because it's it's going to be uh, be revealed. Mm. All right. So, final question for uh, each of you. Um, so, do you think we will achieve the COP twenty six target of net zero carbon emissions by twenty fifty? Um, I'll answer that from at least a consumer perspective. It's, it's a long way off, but I think the I, I like Richard's alignment with the health uh, motivations and it people need to see progress to continue doing something that might be difficult for them. So there's, there's two ways to look at it. Either the consumer behavior needs to be so easy to change that they don't care about the progress. Uh, and that comes down to the simplification that we we're talking about, or the progress needs to be so obvious that they're willing to continue that sacrifice. It's like getting in shape, you see yourself getting healthier, you'll continue doing that activity. So um, it's either an oversimplification of it or it's making it even more tangible. One of those two things at least has to happen, I would say, uh, to to change behavior enough. Well, basically, you know, the IEA talks about 60% of those reductions we need to achieve are related to consumers. And I think we have the solutions there we do have the tools uh, to achieve, to hit the target. Um, so if we get enough smart government incentive schemes like the one I spoke about in France, um, if we get enough brands gravitating to uh, renewables, more regionalization, embracing of nuclear as well, as you might see uh, in nuclear energy I'm talking about in, re- in relation to uh, the crisis we're seeing at the moment, we have the tools to do it. So yes, we can do it if we embrace those areas. I think it's definitely uh, um, going to be a multi-pronged effort. Uh, It's going to require governments, the brands, and then also the consumer. And especially, as I've been saying with the U.S. consumer, uh, I think so much of that comes down to educating and explaining to consumers the way that their behaviors are impacting the environment. Um, You know, so many U.S. consumers are very polarized on the idea of cutting back meat consumption. They don't see how that 
relates to the environment and sustainability. Um, so, you know, once again, I think really educating consumers, um, showing how, demonstrating how their behaviors are having an impact, and then showing the way that, um, you know, making some of these concepts more tangible and showing how they can help improve not only the environment overall, but other aspects of their daily life, how it'll cut down on, um, you know, extreme weather occurrences. Um, I think all of that's really necessary and needed in order to inspire a true behavioral change among U.S. consumers. Well, uh, this has been extremely informative. I think there are many things that listeners can take away from this little conversation. But three things really resonated with me. Uh, number one, uh, consumer priorities when it comes to, to sustainability are clearly changing, as we can see from the barometer. So from a brand perspective, it's about being aware of those change in ha- changes and how it impacts your brand, your business, and within your respective market. Uh, number two, I think, you know, a, a key word that you all referred to multiple times, actually, was this idea of making solutions tangible, uh, making them relatable for consumers, um, particularly at a human level. I think you use that term, Richard, at a community level uh, and really connecting with consumers so that they don't have to, um, you know, sacrifice, you know, saving the environment for, for example, cost. Um, and then number three, that it's all about communication. You know, it's about communication. It's about finding the right tone. It's about being authentic. Um, it's about being respectful. It's about education. Um, and that is not always the easiest thing to do, but it clearly it's a, a top priority uh, going forward. Uh, so with that, thank you, Richard, Lisa and Scott. Uh, thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe, rate and review us. If you want to know more about Mintel, who we are and what we do, head over to Mintel.com and follow us on social media. We're on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter and Facebook and check out our blog for even more insights from our analysts. Bye for now. 